Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. We're doing a couple of weeks on relationships. Last week we kind of talked about relationships broadly. This week we're talking about them. Uh, we're going to talk about friendship. I'm going to read a couple of verses from 1 Samuel 18, but we're going to draw from all over Scripture. Um, I love talking about this, this series broadly, uh, but especially on the issue of friendship. If you have, I, and I, there's no way I can be comprehensive on it. So what I hope to at least give y'all is some kind of fundamentals uh, about what's being depicted here and kind of one of the most beautiful friendships in Scripture, but also some of the wisdom from Proverbs. Um, please text me, please email me. I would love to hang out with you. I would love to talk about friendship. I would love to wrestle with these things and other questions you have. Um, uh, let's get coffee. So do that. Uh, secondly, um, I stole everything I'm about to say from a bunch of guys, Sammy Rhodes, Brian Sorgenfried, John Stone, Tim Keller, the same litany uh, of friends of mine and and older people who've thought about these things longer. Um, But the reason we're talking about friendship tonight, this is actually true, because this is the thing people have asked me to speak about the most. More people have asked me to, when are we going to talk about friendship at RUF? More than dating, actually. Um, And I thought about pulling the room of like, hey, why do y'all think people kept asking me why we want to talk on friendship? But then I realized no one would probably want to raise their hands and be like, because I want to know how to make friends. So I'm not going to put y'all through that. Uh, We'll just assume we're all asking that question. Um, Actually, this morning I came across um, a writing by a 12th century Scottish monk I don't know how to say his name. It's A E L R E D. And he take what do you got, Daniel? Scottish Elred of R I E V A U L X. What's that? That guy. Uh, in the 12th century, wrote this uh, short work called um, "Spiritual Friendship," and he says there's three kinds of friendship, and. Um, before I read this text, I'm just going to kind of talk about a couple of different forms of friendship and then the one that we're going to talk about today. And the first one, and this, these aren't words we normally use, is he says is there's carnal friendship. And uh, a carnal friendship, what he means by that is it's a friendship based on a shared pleasure. So something uh, you do with people, something you enjoy together with people. People, maybe you watch certain types of TV shows or movies with friends. Maybe you party with certain types of friends. Maybe you work out with certain types of friends. But one of the ways you know it's a carnal friendship is, though you exist with them in one realm of your life where you share this pleasure together, they don't have access to other parts of your life. So I do CrossFit, and when I used to work out at a CrossFit gym, and I would see somebody I worked out with in a business suit later in the day, it would be really, really weird, because that's not how I know them, right? So we experience this. If you have friends that you go out with, and then you have your Christian friends, and those are separate groups, right? If you have your dorm friends and your RUF friends, if you have your friends involved in this student organization and then your social friends, right? Those are carnal friendships in the sense that they don't have full access to all of you. You just happen to share some things, some hobbies with them. Uh, Then secondly, he talks about worldly friendships. Worldly friendships aren't based on a shared pleasure. 
they're based, uh, they're, sh- they're based on what you get from them. So this is study group friends, right? The friendship exists over the fact that you both benefit from being social together in that setting. This is what networking is, right? Th- there can also be social capital, certain social ways you relate to people because you benefit from associating with them socially. Again, they're not privy to your whole life. Uh, they're just around when you have something that can benefit them or when they have something that can benefit you. But when they no longer offer you anything or you no longer offer them anything, you kind of don't know how to relate to each other. But we're not talking about either one of those friendships tonight, and those friendships are not bad, but they're also not very deep. And if that's all we have, I would suggest we don't have real, true friendship. Um, Because the third kind of friendship, Elred, right, Daniel? Okay. <laughs> Daniel's a linguist, by the way, for those of you who are like, why is he picking on the Scott, the Irish guy in the middle of... It's actually because he speaks more languages than the rest of us. But um, spiritual friendship never asks, how am I benefiting from this? Are they measuring up as a friend to me? Is this becoming too costly for me? Rather, spiritual friendship asks, how can we seek the holy together? How can I love them? And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And by holy, he means the things of God. That at the end of the day, what we're going to say tonight is that the deepest friendship is built around connecting with one another over the ultimate meaning and purpose, which we believe is God and His love. So I'm going to read from 1 Samuel 18. and To give you a little bit of context, here's what's happened. Saul is the king of Israel. David was a shepherd boy who came and conquered uh, Goliath, who was their military enemy at that point in time with the Philistines. And what's happening in chapter 18 is David, this shepherd, is becoming this hero in the land of Israel. And Saul the king and his successor, Jonathan, his son, are figuring out how to relate to David. And David and Jonathan begin to have this friendship. Saul hates David because he sees him as a political threat. He actually ki- tries to kill them, I think, five or six times. And, uh, and yet, David is also his son Jonathan's best friend. So that's the setting of these couple of verses. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, Saul's son, was knit to the soul of David, who's just a shepherd. He's a low life. Socioeconomically, David and Jonathan have nothing in common. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Uh, And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So Saul sent him all over the, sent, set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this small picture of friendship and as we consider it and what else your word has to say about friendship, I pray that we would be challenged. Don't let us minimize or mitigate what you have to say to us, Father God. And I pray um, that you would give us the courage to embrace these things, but we need your Holy Spirit to do that. We need your Holy Spirit to come to our hearts and to change us and to transform us according to your love and into your image. 
So be with us in your name we pray. Amen. Um, a social, what is, what is that clicking? Do we know? Okay. All right. Uh, huh? Okay. Okay. Um, all right. Robert Bellow was a social scientist at UC Berkeley for a long time. He wrote a book in 1985 called Habits of the Heart. I've referenced it several times. Uh, the subtitle is Individualism and Commitment in American Life. And that's what he studies is how do we con- that's what he studied is how do we conceive of ourselves as individuals when what is the kind of language we use and the conceptual framework we use to think of ourselves as individuals and how do we think about the idea of commitment. And uh, one of the things he said in that book is he said, one of his conclusions was, and this is how one of my friends summarized it, is to Americans, the ideal is the unencumbered self, which I think is language he borrowed from John Locke. And the way my friend said it is, he said what Bella was saying is that if we could have our way, no institution and no relationship could get in the way of me being myself, of me expressing myself, of me pursuing the things that I am all about. And if any institution or commitment or relationship gets in the way of me being me, doing what I need to do, seeking my own well-being and my own personal expression, then I can always either minimize my involvement or opt out altogether. And he's saying that's fundamentally how the American individual thinks about life. And the first big point, and really kind of maybe the most challenging point, though tonight I think a lot of them are challenging, is this. There is no compromise between the unencumbered self and experiencing deep friendship. You can only have one. You cannot seek the unencumbered self and experience deep friendship. They are Mutually exclusive. And for many of us, that's actually the crux of what we need to wrestle with tonight. Because actually when you choose the self above all else, you choose loneliness. There's nothing more threatening to unencumbered self than the kind of friendship that is described in 1 Samuel 18. Than genuine deep friendship. The reason that we don't have deep friendship is not because we haven't found the right circumstances that attract our type of people. And that's what we often think. I'm just in a place where there just aren't the right types of people for me to have deep friendship with. That's not true. The reason we don't have deep friendship is because we actually don't think anyone is worth loving more than ourselves and our own plan. The reason, I want to say that again, the reason we don't have deep friendship is not because we haven't found the right circumstances that attract the right sort of people. It's because we don't think anyone is worth loving more than ourselves and our plan. Because when the Bible speaks on relationships, whether it's friendship or marriage or parenting or being a child or a relationship with God, the heart of joy in relationships, this is, you cannot enjoy Deeply, any relationship until you understand and embrace the possibility of actually loving someone more than you love yourself. And that is impossible to do unless you explore the heart of ultimate reality and see that Jesus on the cross is God's real expression of that kind of love for you. So what we're going to talk about tonight is what are some of the features of friendship and then what is the foundation we can't be exhaustive. 
So I'm going to give you some important things. And please, let's talk more after this. But we're not shaking hands. Um, Two features of friendship we're going to talk about tonight. Vulnerability and commitment. If I, we have a limited amount of time, I think those are the two most important things to talk about. Vulnerability and commitment. Depth and constancy. It's another way to say it. The way Tim Keller said it is a friend always lets you in and never lets you down. A true friend always lets you in and never lets you down. And it's very easy to be one and not the other. Right? You can even kind of see these temperaments in people. That Some people, they're like really authentic. They wear their hearts on their sleeves. They, they're just very, very knowable right off the back, but tremendously flaky and undependable. And on the other hand, we also know people, maybe this is some of us, right, who are really, really stable, but not knowable at all. You're like, wow, they're really, really reliable, but I have no idea if I really know them. But friendship requires both, both vulnerability and commitment. The first feature, vulnerability. Jonathan and David's friendship, the text starts with, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. That's language of incredible intimacy. It's so intimate that I think we both long for that kind of friendship. We're like, wow, that sounds like powerful, beautiful friendship. But we'd also be embarrassed by that kind of language. Because they knew each other's hearts. He loved him as his own soul. That's actually what it says in chapter 20. The language is the language of deep oneness and deep vulnerability and deep intimacy. Now, why is vulnerability necessary for deep friendship? Let's just think about the things that we normally hide from friends. Right? Let's say you're wrestling with pornography. It's a constant struggle every day. You're trying to figure out what to do with it, what to do with the temptation. This is something, this is something we instinctually hide from our friends. And the stronger hold it has on you, the more you seek to hide it. But if a friend is someone who shares and bears burdens, is there friendship? Can there be connection? Can there be understanding if you don't let them into that dark corridor of your life? How many things are you carrying alone? Friendship means vulnerability. Paul says that we are called to bear each other's burdens. And bearing means that we carry each other's heavy things. And here's the thing about carrying each other's heavy things. They're heavy. So they weight down your friends too. It doesn't mean we just know each other's heavy things. Becoming aware of each other's heavy things is of some to little value. That's not bearing. Bearing means you carry it too. It means to be friends with you means they are weighted down with your heavy things. And for you to be friends with them means that you are weighted down with their heavy things. But here's the thing. If you're carrying it with them, it's half the weight for them. Right? Last night, Mary Walton was up all night throwing up. And all night she was saying, Daddy, I'm sorry for keeping you up. And because her dad is kind of this hard-hearted Christian pastor thing that he's still repenting through, instead of kind of comforting the way we think we should comfort your 11-year-old in that setting, I would say, your apology is illegitimate. You've done nothing wrong. This is what a father does. I don't know. She's going to have to talk to the therapist about that one. But my point was... It is my right and my privilege to stay up all night with you. You cannot apologize for this. 
right? A friend carries weight with you. Are you carrying wounds done to you by yourself? Are you carrying wounds? Do you have a friend that can carry them with you? Are you carrying your own failures by yourself? How many of us are carrying our baggage by ourselves? There's no greater sense of friendlessness than when we carry our failures, like our personal failures, and our wounds, the way we've been hurt by others, in secret by ourselves. But here's the thing about vulnerability. Vulnerability is not just about the bad things in our life. Do you have someone to share joy with? In 2001, the Ravens won the Super Bowl, and there was this really candid interview years later by the quarterback of the Super Bowl winning team, Trent Dilfer. And he was asked what about the lowest moment in his professional life, and he says it was right after that game because he stayed out on the field with the media for so long that when he came to the locker room, his teammates were gone. The lowest moment of his life was when he had no one to share his greatest joy with. Do you have someone who rejoices with you over your joys? Can you rejoice with them? Deep friendship means that the dark recesses and the highest joys of our life are shared. Vulnerability also requires that we share life in a real way. And this means that the important things don't transpire over text. This is where I hate on technology a little bit, but it's really not about technology, it's about us. Why do we prefer to text disappointing and hurtful things to friends? It's because we don't want to see their face and deal with the repercussions of sharing the emotions of that experience, right? Texting bad news and texting hurtful things, that's the drone strike of friendship, right? We can sit in a mall in Kansas City and kill somebody and go home and eat dinner that night. That's what we want to do when we send those texts. We actually want to emotionally withdraw from the actual friendship itself from being a person. We don't want to viscerally experience their humanity when we hit sin. And speaking face-to-face about hard things, that's really vulnerable. A friend will face you. But why aren't we vulnerable? We're not vulnerable because we're afraid. We're afraid we're the only one. The barrier to vulnerability is fear. We're afraid that we're the only one that will be rejected, that will be embarrassed, that will be exposed, that if someone knew our whole story, they would run from us. But with no vulnerability, there's no deep friendship, which is why the other component is necessary. Commitment. With you and for you. Jonathan makes a covenant And the word covenant is used to describe their friendship. What is covenant? Here's a couple of aspects of covenant. First, covenant means it's a choice. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times a brother is born for adversity. What does that mean? You don't choose your siblings, right? They're forced on you. Some of us wish they weren't. But I know I can all have two brothers. I know I can always call them and they have to answer. They don't have a choice. They got stuck with me, I got stuck with them. A friend chooses to enter your adversity. They're not obligated by blood or by arrangement to enter your adversity. Friends choose to. Friends are not relationships where where you're here because you have to be here. 
Friends are those who say, I choose to be here with you. I don't have to be here, but I choose you now in your adversity because we're friends. Covenant is an act of choice. But secondly, it's an enduring choice. Proverbs 18.24, One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. This means covenant is enduring. One of the questions I get all the time that we all wrestle with is how long do I let this hard friendship go on? How long do I keep walking with this person? And if you're asking that question, you've actually already conceded the friendship. You've actually conceded that at its foundation, there's not a commitment to the other person's well-being. When we had our second set of... Some of y'all know we have two sets of twins. They're 20 months apart. When we had our second set, we had four children under the age of two. Uh, We had nothing to offer the world. Some of y'all can identify this. If you Guys, if you're like me in college, you're like, I don't know what this guy's talking about. Let me just tell you, four children under two is the hardest thing I'll ever endure in my entire life. One day you'll understand that. But we could offer, and sorry if some guys I offended you because you're like, I totally understand that. That's totally sexist to say guys can't understand that. I just know, by and large, girls have a little bit more sympathy for us than guys. Anyways, <laughs> try not avoid the microaggressions but um, that was probably a microaggression too oh no <laughs> oh man almost crushed an RUF um, alright four kids under two we could do nothing for anyone else if you were our friends during those two years, it costs you and you benefit nothing. And in a sweet way, but also a hard way, we figured out some people who we thought were our friends weren't. We figured out that some people we didn't know were our friends really deeply were. Because we had nothing to offer anyone for two years. That's when we discovered who our friends were. Do you want something or someone who will endure adversity with you? Because if you're actually calculating your personal cost and your personal exit point during their adversity, then you don't understand the nature of friendship. When, when the writer of Proverbs says, one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than the brother, why is that? Why is it with unreliable friends we come to ruin? It's because actually the time that we need a friend the most is when things are the worst. We're asking, how bad do they have to get before I get to leave? But the time we need friends the most is when they get far worse than we ever thought they would imagine. We could imagine them to be. Right? We need friends the most when things are the worst. A friend endures. Their yes means yes. And we don't get this because we keep the possibility of opting out at our fingertips all the time. Right? Opting out of awkward social settings, difficult time-consuming and energy-consuming things, uncool people, annoying obligations, opting out anytime something new and better is offered. All of it is offered. All of that reveals we still aren't servants in our friendships, but we're consumers. We're always ready to back out if something that we deem better or more important comes along. And Jesus says to the disciples in John 15, if you want an answer to, well, how bad does it have to get before I let the negative consequences of being friends with them 
affect me? Do I get to cut that off at some point? Jesus answers that. In John 15, he says, Love each other the way I've loved you. You're like, oh, that's a little ambiguous. And he goes further. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's the limit. Friends lay down their lives. He laid down his life to forgive his friends. Because friendship's not perfect. So if it's going to endure, forgiveness has to be ongoing. When the disciples asked, well, how much do I have to forgive? Jesus answered, 70 times 70, which is not intended for us to calculate that out and keep a tab. He's saying it's ongoing. Commitment is only possible with forgiveness being an ongoing component of of friendship. Because the reality is, I'm not going to measure up. You're not going to measure up. So can we forgive each other over and over again? In premarital counseling, one of the the chief things Elizabeth and I talk about with engaged couples is, now that you're engaged and about to get married, you've chosen the person you're going to sin against the most for the rest of your life. So really the question is, can you forgive them over and over and over again until you die? That's really what we have to talk about. So friendship is vulnerability and commitment. And commitment means that we choose people, that we endure with people. But commitment also means we endure and we choose them, we endure with them in seeking their well-being. The weird scene of Jonathan right here taking off his robe and taking off his armor and giving his belt and his sword and his robe and his armor to David. What's going on right here? David is taking all of his future potential for being great in this world and giving it to his friend. Those are the markers of his identity. The prince. The crown prince. The would-be king of Israel. And he's giving them to his friend David so that David could be king. The king that Jonathan should have been. Not only could Jonathan celebrate his success, the success of his friend... He actually contributed to it at his own expense. Right? What are we supposed to do when our friends are successful? We're supposed to pretend like we're happy about it and grumble at it on the inside that it's not us. What do we do when our friends are are successful at our expense? End the friendship. That's not what Jonathan does. He seeks his friend's success at his own expense. His concern was not for himself, but for his friend. If friendship is a choice to be enduringly committed to their well-being, that means friends do two things. At least two things. They affirm and encourage the good things in us. It's important. And they confront the bad things in us. Affirmation is a good thing, but it's only a good thing if what you're affirming is good. And if we make affirmation the only thing, then any friendship that only has affirmation as its only component and no confrontation, that actually means it's not friendship, that what you're doing is you're patronizing each other, which C.S. Lewis says is the worst possible way to treat someone. Because patronizing actually uh, denies them dignity altogether, because when you patronize someone, what you're saying is, actually, I disagree with you, but I'm not going to dignify you enough as a person to say that, and I'll just pretend like I agree. 
C.S. Lewis actually says it's actually worse than hating someone. If you hate someone, you're actually honest with them. Uh, I watch the HBO show Girls. Yes? Everybody connect? No? Okay. Well, it's... <laughs> Wait, I haven't no. even watched it. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. I thought I could count on you, Lorenzo, but all right, I'm up here alone. Um, it's a fascinating show, actually, about friendship, and the friendships are so distorted in it. In the first episode of this past season, Marnie, which I know you all connect with the characters now, has this fight with Hannah. Yeah, we all know Hannah, and how annoying she can be, right? Thanks for making me feel included. But... <laughs> <laughs> Girls is like the New York version of, and female version of Entourage. But, alright, Marnie and Hannah are fighting because Marnie is about to get into a marriage that she shouldn't get into. We all know that. And this is what Marnie says. See, we got this? Everybody tracking with the plot? Okay. She says, finally, this is what ends the fight. And this is like, Hannah concedes, like, yes, you're right to this. Marnie says, can't you just pretend that you don't think I'm making a huge mistake? And that's the Trump card. That like, oh, if we're friends, then that's what I have to do. I've got to pretend like you're not making a huge mistake. She actually shames her into affirmation and betraying her own conscience. And this is what we think is the chief hallmark of friendship. We, we talk about safe spaces all the time. And we think that what safe spaces are and safe places are, are a place where no one disagrees with you. Okay, that's an incredibly unsafe place. All like regimes that have done horrible things, always silent, dissenting voices. Here's what a safe place is. A place where someone affirms the good in you and confronts the bad in you and says, and no matter what, I am with you always. That's a safe place. Proverbs 27.6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but, the, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Friends will wound you if you need it. I'm not talking about wounding each other out of anger, out of spite, out of, regen- out of revenge, out of flakiness. The text is talking about loving rebuke. It's talking about confrontation, driven by a desire to see each other flourish. That this is my desire to actually see you happy. So we actually have to tell each other when we're saying or acting on stupid things. A true friend will actually risk the friendship because they love you. And that might be, it it might be the case that tonight, the one friend you punish because they said hard things to you might be the only friend you have and you need to run after them. Now when we begin to process these things, vulnerability and commitment, right? Here's the challenge, it's like, we're like, I don't know if I have good friends, I don't know if I am a good friend. Writing and thinking about this wore me down. I couldn't think about it without thinking about the people in my life, because I know, because I know I'm afraid of being known. And I'm not sure I can trust my friends. You're not sure you can trust your friends. I'm not sure you can trust me. I'm not sure my friends should trust me. Vulnerability is a really terrifying proposition. To carry heavy things with people is really hard. To ask other people to carry your heavy things is really hard. But secondly, we also know we're not very consistent in friendship. Writing this is hard because I know I could immediately begin to just tabulate all different ways I've failed my friends. I haven't been consistent. Some of y'all know that about me. You've experienced that. So what do we do? 
the foundation of friendship? How do we get in on this kind of friendship? How do we begin to move toward it? And I think, it, as I thought about it, I think it's kind of a chicken or egg kind of thing. Like, do we need to become this kind of friend first, or do we need to seek these kind of friends first? Right? Is this about me taking the responsibility of this kind of right person? Yeah. Do I need to find people like this? Well, yeah. I don't know how to tell you which one to do first. And I think the way we think about friendship is actually we think about friendship the same way we think about romance. And what I mean by that is we're kind of waiting for the right person to come along. And then we're just kind of, and, and we kind of think, well, one day we'll just kind of fall into friendship with someone. We actually think about it the same way we think about love and romance. And I think we have to consider the fact that when we say things like, I don't have any friends, we usually say that, sometimes we say that out of self-pity, sometimes we say that out of judgment of others, but when we say that, we're also saying, no one around me is worthy of my friendship. But we've forgotten the first aspect of commitment, that friendship is a choice. It's a choice to be vulnerable and committed. And part of vulnerability is actually that you have the same heart. Jonathan and David's hearts were knit because both of their hearts were of the same center, the kingdom of God. I have the privilege of getting to know a lot of y'all. Uh, I love it. It's why I do this job and I get to see some of your hearts and that's like, that's a, that's a high privilege. I consider it a privilege. And one of the sad things to me is that in this room, there are a lot of people for whom Jesus is becoming very precious to you. And I get to see that a little bit. And then turns get to Eric and Jess and Ellie get to see that a little bit, that Jesus is becoming precious to you. And to think that you all look at each other and think, you know what, we don't have shared hobbies and we don't have similar personalities, therefore I'm not sure anybody in this room is a viable friendship candidate. It's sad because your hearts both belong to Jesus. What if friendship was choosing someone or a couple of people who had the same heart? And when you think, but I'm so different from them in all these other ways, then you're actually stumbling into one of the awesome aspects of God's intended blessing of friendship, which is really, really different personalities with the same heart. This is me and Jess's friendship. I don't think we would ever naturally be friends unless our employing, uh, the organization that employed us forced us to become friends. <laughs> right? I'm, uh, I didn't ask for Jess's permission on this one. <laughs> But Jess, <laughs> Jess looks at me and is like, oh, look, here's this kind of arrogant jock guy who might be a Christian. And I'm kind of like, <laughs> I'm kind of like, all right, here's this like emo rock snob <laughs> who might be a Christian. <laughs> and here's the thing. If it weren't for Jess, I would not be listening to Oh Hellos. And if it weren't for me, Jess would not be doing CrossFit. Now, some of y'all think that's a weakness, but... <laughs> Just follow me on the illustration. We're not alike and we have been blessed by friendship in Christ by being friends with people who are nothing like us. At the end of the day, friendship with one another begins with Jesus overwhelming your heart with His friendship. Because how do we become these kinds of friends with one another? Our theme the whole series is 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love each other. And this kind of love is from God. 
And whoever loves these kind of ways has been born of God and knows God. And if God loves you this way, you also ought to love one another. And we love each other in this way because this is the way He loved us. We want friendship, but we want to know the limits of what it can cost us. And as long as we place limits on love, we can actually never fully experience it because we never really understand that Jesus placed no limits on His love for you. He gave His life for you. He made Himself vulnerable. In Jesus' ministry, God puts His heart on display for you. He says, I want you to know the deepest recesses of my heart. I want hungry people to eat. I want broken people to walk again. I cry when people die. I forgive and welcome egregiously morally broken people. And I can't stand smug religious people who think they're better than others. And if you need me to, I will suffer for you so you don't have to suffer. God puts His heart on full display for you and the depth of His heart in Jesus. But He doesn't just make Himself vulnerable in that way just by making Himself known. He puts His life on the line. It is radically unsafe to love broken people. And we're all broken. So guess what? It's radically unsafe to be friends. When you love a broken thing, not simply feel fondness or feel sadness for it, that's not what love is, but actually love, meaning you actually walk into doing something about it or for them, what you do is you absorb the broken mess. It gets on you as you seek to take it away from someone else. Jesus laid down His life for our broken lives. He knew that you would not be a good Christian. Did you know that? He knew you'd be terrible at being a Christian. He knew I would be terrible at being a Christian. He knew that you would not be a good friend to Him. He knew I would not be a good friend to Him. He knew that you wouldn't be a good friend to your friends. He knew that I wouldn't be a good friend to my friends. At some point, we're all shockingly disappointed that the people that we thought were great friends are not good people. But Jesus doesn't hang on the cross and then get surprised by who we really are. He's not hanging up there going, hold on, hold on, hold on. What, really? You're like that? You're that selfish? You're that flawed? You're that broken? You're that hard-hearted? You're that ungrateful for what I'm doing for you? He's not hanging on the cross surprised by who we are. He knows it all, and He went willingly because He's our friend. John 15, Jesus tells the disciples, I don't call you my servants. I call you my friends. Jesus says, you are my friend. I choose you. I choose you over my self-interest. I choose to make your joy my joy. I choose to invest my life in you. I choose to carry your burdens away. Another thing we do in premarital counseling, you know you are going to get premarital counseling from me and Elizabeth anymore, is we try to tell couples... I know you like each other and I know you're excited. That's good. But you really don't know each other and you have to prepare for the moment when you discover that the other person is completely objectionable. That is going to happen in 100% of your marriages. Here's the thing. That didn't happen with Jesus. He didn't fall in love with you and discover later we're selfish, mean, narcissistic people. Jesus knew who you really were. 
He knows who I am, and He gave everything that He had so that you could live in the eternal love of God. Because He's a good friend. Because He chose you. The reason worship is prominent in the life of someone who understands the grace of His love is because you realize He didn't have to love me. But He did. He chose to love me. Not the resume me. Not the social media me. Not the fake Christian me. Not because you're fun. And not because you're cool. And not because you offer Him social capital. And not because He benefits from being associated with you. He chose the 3 a.m. lying awake in your bed with panic, insecurity, guilt, and fear because you know who you really are, you. That's the you He chose. And if we get that, and it sits at the center of who we are, and it becomes a rich experience of knowing God's love for us, there is deep, wonderful, powerful, costly, amazing friendship to be had with one another. Let's pray.